Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host for today, Carla Nappi. I recently had a great time talking with Kyle Stanford about his book, Exceeding Our Grasp, Science, History, and the Problem of Unconceived Alternatives. Now, that first came out with Oxford University Press in 2006, but it was then re-released as a paperback in 2010, and it's the paperback that we spent time talking about. This is a book that explores a question that seems very simple, but that's actually fundamental to not just the scholarly study of science, um, including its philosophical and historical and sociological aspects, but also to understanding what it means to live in a world um, that is really kind of full of, and in many ways, um, the ramifications of um, the way that we venerate the authority of science. And that question is, Essentially, should we really believe what our best scientific theories say about the otherwise inaccessible parts of the world they seek to describe? And this is a question posed by Stanford in the book. Now, the book goes on to explore um, the question of and and varieties of um, what we might call scientific realism and its alternatives in a really interesting way that I think is particularly um, fascinating for um, anyone interested in innovative ways of combining the history and philosophy of science. Um, it's really interesting. We had a great time talking about it, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, Kyle. Hi, thanks for having me. We're here today to talk with Kyle Stanford about his book, Exceeding Our Grasp, Science, History, and the Problem of Unconceived Alternatives. Now, that first came out with Oxford University Press in 2006, but it just came out only a a couple years ago as a paperback, and so this is an occasion um, for us to get together over Skype and talk about what I found to be a really stimulating, really fascinating book, and I think one that's of special interest and special importance to the field of STS, um, and just... That shows a really broad interdisciplinary range um, in its subject matter and in its um, mode of presentation. So thanks so much, Kyle, for the book um, and for making time to talk with us about it today. Absolutely my pleasure. So can you start us off um, sort of broadly by saying a little bit about what brought you into the field? How did you decide to, I know this is a broad question and we're probably having to look back quite a ways, but what got you interested in um, philosophy of science in the first place? It's it's actually strangely easy to answer in this context because it was uh, uh, my first contact with the issue of scientific realism, which is a lot of what the book is about, uh, in college that first drew me into the philosophy of science. I was really blown away by the, the I, I mean, like everybody else, I'd sort of uh, uh, taken the, the grasp or, or the picture of, um, of various domains of nature that you get from theoretical natural science uh, at face value, uh, learning them in, in earlier parts of my education. And that was, uh, it was sort of, it was sort of a mind blowing experience to suddenly be thinking about arguments that, that all of that might have been too hasty. And so, uh, it's funny in, uh, in graduate school, I worried about things, many things that were very different. Uh, my dissertation had nothing, has nothing to do with the book. Really? But then, yeah, nothing. 
um, it was a, on the theory of causation, but I came back to, I mean, I, I worried about these kinds of questions a, a fair bit, partly because I was in the uh, science studies program at UCSD, uh, but, uh, but it wasn't sort of the central focus of my, my work. And, but it, when I started teaching uh, intro philosophy of science courses again, it bugged me more and more and more, and I sort of figured out that that's what I had something to say about uh, that I couldn't stop working on. And, uh, and that the, so the book really grew out of the same thing that got me into philosophy of science in the first place. That's fascinating. And you had, a, did, did you take your dissertation on causation and where did, where did that go? Or are you, are, did that become articles? Did you just decide to move on from that or? So, it, um, there were so, some parts of it became articles. Parts of it were on, on Hume and history of philosophy and, and, uh, a couple of parts of it did that way. But actually the central machinery, uh, the, and the, and the central proposal, uh, I was very enthusiastic about, and, and I still think it's roughly right, uh, but I had uh, a, a reviewer raise some objections uh, to it uh, in paper format that I didn't really have good answers to. Mm-hmm. And so I stopped trying to publish it at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and good I, for you. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, I... Uh, <laughs> uh, that just sounds like there's something very freeing about that. I mean, that just sounds actually fantastic. From I mean, there wasn't a, there wasn't any big moral virtue at the time. I sort of uh, the decision I actually made was, I'm, I will have to think about this more and see yeah. if I, if I think there are answers to these questions. And uh, the the uh, not work, not attempting to have it published anymore came out of the the fact of not finding answers to those questions. But also, I mean, between then and now, I've changed a lot in my views of sort of uh, how philosophical issues are most productively approached. So even if I were to go back to that kind of thing, I wouldn't do it in the way that I did then anyway. So that, that's been also part of why it doesn't uh, hurt so much to lose my baby that um, <laughs> I, I now would think of things in different ways than I did then. Well, the book um, that did come out of this for your first is wonderful, and that's um, and I let's get right into that. Um, this is I mean I've already sort of briefly mentioned this at the, at the beginning. We talked a little bit about this before um, we started recording the interview, but one of the really notable things about this book um, before we actually get into the the meat and potatoes of it, and one of the things that really um, really grabbed me. Um, the title is Exceeding Our Grasp, so that wasn't a pun, but maybe sort of. It's some uh, area of my mind. The thing that really grabbed me is um, your, I think, very successful attempt in this book to meaningfully bring together the history of science and the philosophy of science. This isn't a book that just cherry-picks one famous you know, book about one famous case about one, you know, famous scientific discovery and uses that as the basis from which to expand out and theorize. This is a book that does serious work in primary and secondary literature in, you know, a bunch of different cases in the history of science and in particularly the history of biological sciences. Um, I would love to hear a little bit more, um, if you wouldn't mind talking about it, about that approach. Um, what kind of brought you into a kind of topic and a kind of way of working out a topic that brought you so deeply into engagement with the historical record and in, in a very meaningful way, not in a, I mean, from my perspective as a historian of science, not in at all a superficial way. So can you talk about that um, transdisciplinarity? 
Sure, and I'm I'm delighted to hear your, uh, that reaction. Uh, so there are kind of two different ways in which that was motivated. Uh, the, the the most important, I suppose, is is internal to the project. What the 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 central question that the book is worrying about is this very long-standing issue of scientific realism. That is to say. Uh, whether we should uh, take the the descriptions given by our our best scientific theories of, of otherwise inaccessible parts of nature uh, as straightforward descriptions of what's really there in areas that are hard to hard to get access to otherwise, or if we should see them in some other way. And uh, I mean that's been a philosophical issue on which uh, people taken the history of science to bear. Right, and, and philosophers of science have, have made a, um, a, a extensive use of the historical record in trying to ad- address that question, especially in the, the late '60s and '70s uh, and into the '80s, when when the marriage of history and philosophy of science was was kind of new. Uh, I think largely in the the as a result of, of Thomas Kuhn's uh, work uh, and the structure of scientific revolutions, but uh, the uh, and so there's been this sort of very productive and useful marriage, but uh, I think especially I mean that in that generation of of philosophers of, of science, the use did tend to be in the way that you were were just suggesting. There would be a sort of we'd sort of take advantage of the potted histories of sciences, and there were a couple sort of really well uh, uh, recycled examples. That would be adverted to again and again, phlogiston and the ether and uh, caloric. Uh, not and not that I don't talk about those examples, but it did seem to me uh, part of what one would want in in part of what the book se- seeks to do is make an historical case uh, that raises problems for for the scientific realist view in a way that I think hadn't been really been done before and. Uh, one thing I wanted to do was to so and it, it argues that the, the the positive the affirmative reasons we have for for our da- for doubting the realist view uh, the evidence for those comes from the historical record and I thought and and it seemed to me that if you wanted to make that case uh, the best place to make it was where people thought it would be hardest to make, and that was in the biological sciences, right? There's a, there tends to be this very field-specific differences in how plausible people find uh, scientific realism or alternatives to it. And uh, for for interesting and not non not crazy reasons, uh, biologists and philosophers of biology are some of the most unrepentant uh, realist uh, scientists. And philosophers around, uh, by contrast with, say, theoretical physicists or right something like that. Mm-hmm. And so, what I wanted to do was in, in the, the book there are several chapters that treat a, a detailed uh, succession of theories of what would have been called at the at the time theories of generation. We we would call them theories of inheritance, uh, uh, and. And it would, it would package up a couple of different things into right growth and em- embryology and uh, uh, repair, and uh, and I wanted to to both uh, tackle and show that the, the general case I was suggesting on historical grounds could be supported uh, both within the biological sciences, where people seem tend to think it would be hard to do, as opposed to mathematized physics, and also for comparatively recent science. So it, it deals with those theories of inheritance and generation 
in the second half of the 19th century, theories that are pretty close to, pretty continuous with uh, contemporary theories, uh, and yet in ways that really matter to the argument, uh, also quite different from, from what we now believe. So as we're still setting the stage, um, you will, we'll get into the chapters in a few moments. And you look mm-hmm. at um, the key studies in particular that focus on Darwin, Galton, and Weismann. Mm-hmm. And um, it's really interesting hearing um, about the, the sort of justifications that went into focusing on this particular field and this per- perhaps this particular um, subset of the field. Can you say a little bit about... Um, how you then, once you identify that you wanted to work on something that we might consider to be within the history of the biological sciences, right? Even though, you know, I know that I'm being anachronistic by even saying that and, you know, let's just, we, we can all agree on that and then move on. Um, but um, how, it, you decided to not just work on that, but why the problems of, I guess we'll start there, why the problems of inheritance um, and Genesis in particular, and related to that, um, at what point, or how did you feel comfortable that it was going to be possible to generalize from this particular set of theories and this kind, though the way that a theory is worked out in the historical documents that you look at, to mm-hmm. something that's more broadly constitutive of scientific theor- theoretization, um, broadly read? So yeah, that's a great question. Uh, l- let me kind of answer it backwards. Sure. Uh, the because I mean, part of the motivation was purely opportunistic, right? I saw a, a a nicely organized succession of theories where I thought the phenomenon that I was talking about, which I do think of as as quite general, mm-hmm. uh, was on especially clear display, mm-hmm. and so I could make the case there. But really, I mean, the way that the the argument sets up in the book, I, I sort of first motivate the, um, the, uh, the claim that this is a general phenomenon, which is not to say that it applies to all scientific claims of all sorts, or it applies to all scientific theories. What, what the limits are is something I've been thinking about more lately. But, uh, but I, I first motivate the case by gesturing at, right, in, in sort of the old-fashioned way, a long list of, uh, successions of theories in the history of science that I think exemplify the same pattern, right? So I, I say that this is the pattern we have in the, the study of mechanics uh, from Aristotle to Descartes to Newton to, to uh, Einstein. Uh, and then I get into uh, what I do, I, I ultimately wind up considering a, a sort of package of objections mm-hmm. to thinking of this as the, the general pattern we're finding out there. And it, it turns out, I, I think you can't answer those objections without doing the details. <laughs> and so that's what motivated me to want to wanna plunge into the details in at least one set of ca- cases. <laughs> and the, this seemed both to me like a, opportunistically, like a place where I could really make a strong case, and but also where the case would be especially effective, right? People have, have sort of done the, the, um, the examples that I gestured at, uh, in lots and lots of, of cases, and and so I wanted to uh, to be do, trying it on a new set of example, trying to uh, make the case that it was a, a new set of examples, and that it applied even there. So so in a way, it was supposed to support, it, as opposed to saying, here's something that's happening in a very detailed uh, set of uh, very specific set of theories, mm-hmm. and I claim this happens everywhere, mm-hmm. right? 
I first I, I use some broad historical um, examples to suggest that this is it, it, not something that happens everywhere, but happens quite widely in science. The problem is a problem we have to worry about quite widely in science. And then I used the specifics of this case to try to rebut, uh, you know, some what seemed to me very natural and uh, reasons for for maybe some skepticism that that's what's really going on. And it couldn't re- couldn't. Answer the or answer those uh, that sort of skepticism without engaging in the details. Uh, it's been really nice, actually. You 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 just said a bunch of really wonderful and complimentary things about uh, about how the book struck you. It's one of the things that's been really gratifying uh, since I went back and did this sort of uh, you know in the trenches historical work is to is for lots of historians of science, particularly some of the um, earlier generation historians of science who've work, worked on, uh, especially guys who, who did it, in, uh, people who did it in biology, uh, coming and saying how much they liked the book and how pleased they were to see uh, an in, into real integration between the, the history and philosophy of science. Again, two fields which in more recent years have, have tended to have drifted a little bit apart from the way they were uh, a few decades ago. I, I I think that that the history and philosophy of science still have an awful lot to offer one another, and there are some you know trends and fashions in the disciplines that are making that a little harder now than they used to be. Absolutely, and and I think some, and and then we'll get into the then we'll get into the argument here. But um, mm-hmm. I think one of the things also, at least in my experience, trying to be involved in ways to bring together um, discussions of history and philosophy of science, or rather discussions among historians and philosophers of science, which is more to the point. Um, it's it's it can be difficult not only because of the kinds of questions that we're asking in these respective fields, but also in the way that questions tend to be asked and responded to, right? I mean, I think at least if you, you know, I remember um, briefly one case and when I was in grad school and there was a workshop um, in my graduate program that explicitly tried to do this. And one of the things that repeatedly happened was, you know, philosophers saying, you know, here's a challenge that I'm going to raise to you. And then, you know, a historian would be like, but what about this? And then it was attack. And the historians were just not used to this kind of rhetoric of, you know, attack, attack, attack. Let's go out for a beer. It's all good. You know, it, this, I think just the, the <laughs> rhetoric of disciplinary um, discussion is so different that that's, again, one of the really great things about this book in particular is that you've somehow managed to speak to both disciplinary fields in ways that, I, you know, I think at least as a historian of science, it feels very convincing to me. It's it's not um, it, it, it's a very convincing marriage here. So I, I appreciate that. It, it made it easier that right in, in this case. Anyway, I truly believe that the that the, the historical details are what the affirmative what the affirmative argument stands on. So I couldn't sort of afford to treat history in this uh, give it the back of my hand sort of uh, sort of way. Uh, but it was very uh, it was very satisfying to me personally to be able to do that and, and sort of um, create what what I thought. I mean, you know, it's your book. You get to write write it the way you want, mm-hmm. and uh, and to set up a, a way that that it seemed to me that the history and philosophy of science could productively interact rather than running into the kind of things that you're talking about. Absolutely. So let's get right into it. Um, so the the um, the book opens up um, by posing an issue that you've already, I think, very um, elegantly mentioned for us, um, which is this issue of. Um, sort of should we really believe what our best scientific theories say about the world, about the parts of the world they seek to describe, both those that are observable and those that are not observable, right? And this issue of observability itself will um, will come up later on. But 
should we believe this? So, I mean, ultimately, at, at various stages of the argument, um, in really interesting ways, this issue of believability and trust, and then what we should practice or enact based on that comes up, right? So this isn't a book and this isn't an argument as I read it that's just about, is it this way or is it that way? It's about sort of what can we be justified in basing our practices and actions upon, you know, given. So it's not, it's not just about, is this right or is this right? So I think mm. I thought that was very, um, very useful. So you lay out here the position of scientific realism. So I'll just sort of briefly state that and then ask you to elaborate on some of the major issues that come out of that. So um, realism being roughly um, the central claims of our best scientific theories um, have some um, relationship, or they're probably true in the simplest form, right? So our, the central claims of our best scientific theories are probably true accounts of what's actually out there in nature. Um, so this is one of the things the book is going to do from here on out is to repeatedly engage with this idea and, and various instantiations of the idea of scientific realism and sort of present um, an alternative, right, to thinking up to taking seriously um, the things that we can do with and the ways that we can use scientific ideas without necessarily having to believe that they are true representations of nature and then act based on that. Okay. Yeah. So there's our baseline. So you raise two major um, concepts in this um, chapter in the first chapter that are going to go on to be central for the rest of the book. One of them is the idea of what you call the pessimistic induction. So for listeners who have no idea what the pessimistic induction is, um, can you just briefly explain what that is and why that's important? Sure. It's actually, it's a great place to start because my, my guess is that you, there will be many listeners who are wondering if we can really mean what we're saying here when we raise the prospect that what our scientific Theories seem to tell us about the world out there isn't actually true. What can, what, who could possibly think that? Uh, and the pessimistic induction is a really good uh, way to start uh, seeing how that might that kind of uh, view might uh, might not be as crazy as it sounds. Uh, the the pessimistic induction is actually a really simple argument. It's been around for a long time, uh, uh, more than a hundred hundred years. Uh, Poincaré is one of the people who raised it very eloquently uh, in the first place. But it it, uh, it it simply goes as follows: uh, our best, our, our reason typically given for believing that our best scientific theories do tell us what things are like in um, remote parts of the universe, in very tiny um, uh, uh, parts of the world, other uh, difficult to get access to areas, is the success that we have uh, using them, right? Predicting, uh, guiding our interventions into nature, and all the rest of it. And yet, thinkers like Poincaré noted, right, uh, the previous theories have had lots of success of the same basic sorts, have allowed us to predict and intervene successfully, and yet have turned out to be uh, uh, fundamentally mistaken in their picture of, the, um, uh, of, the, of whatever part of the natural world they were attempting to describe. And so you might think of it as a, a challenge posed this way. Why should we think that our current successful theories are going to last forever and not ultimately be overturned and replaced by something that's fundamentally or radically different in its basic claims about nature in, in the way that, you know, the, the claims of, uh, of general relativity about the character of gravitational force, it's the 
the deformation of it comes from deformation of space time. It's not a force at all, as it is in Newtonian mechanics. Right? That's a radical difference uh, in, in a descriptive claim about nature. Uh, why would we think, right, just on the basis of the successes they've enjoyed, that we're now at the end of that process of theory replacement and theories su- theories enjoying successes, but ultimately being overturned? Right. So that, that's the sense in which an, it's an induction. It's an induction from the what's happened in in all the past cases uh, to what's what there is probably going to happen in the present case. Uh, and it's pessimistic, of course, because it, it uh, gives us this conclusion that we're uh, uh, that we m- may not uh, be ha- have as much knowledge about the natural world as we think we do. Great. Thank you. Um, okay, so we've got the pessimistic induction, and then we move to um, another idea that's going to be um, very base, or that's going to provide a baseline for everything that comes after. And this is the idea of the under underdetermination of theories by evidence. So, why is the what is the underdetermination of theories by evidence, and why is that important? So this is uh, another sort of long-standing. Uh, uh, line of argument that people have used to try to make trouble for scientific realism. And the idea is, uh, well, okay, you, you've got a, a scientific theory and it's, uh, has a, a bunch of evidence that's supporting it. But of course there could be, uh, another science, another theory, an alternative theory, a fundamentally different theory that was equally well-supported, or at least well-supported, by that very same data, uh, that very same body of evidence. In that case, what you'd want to, so underdetermination is just a term of art, um, and this is the way you'd use it, that that uh, body of evidence underdetermines our theory choice. It doesn't tell us which theory to pick. Mm-hmm. And so the uh, the debate among philosophers of science for years and years has been about whether we ought to really think that there are such uh, alternative theories uh, against which our our evidence underdetermines uh, the choice, and so traditionally philosophers have have worked on coming up with kind of uh, unconvincing examples, alternatives that don't really look like the scientific theories we know and love, and the the debate about underdetermination in that way kind of gets off the rails. But the basic idea is just the idea that one and the same body of evidence could provide compelling support for more than one theoretical possibility. Great. Now, one of the things that then this chapter goes on to do, and again, this is going to be um, foundational, um, is you're showing us persistent problems, uh, or some persistent problems with both of these ideas, both the idea of pessimistic induction and the idea of underdetermination. Now, um, one of the things that's really interesting in here for um, I think for scholars of STS more broadly, and so I'm going to try to focus on those moments um, where I can in the discussion, is you raise the issue that some of the problems with these ideas might be based on the fact that philosophers developing these ideas are focusing primarily on examples from the physical sciences, right? And so in, one ca- in, so in some way, it's the choice of historical examples that's actually determining you know, part of what the philosophy looks like. Um, in the case of problems with these two ideas, um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because it does get at basic methodological issues that I think are very common um, to anyone working on science studies, and, and that is the issue of how to sort of extrapolate from a particular case and, and here a particular field of the sciences more broadly to 
the sciences in general, which, you know, some would argue are so heterogeneous that there's no there there, right? So can you say uh, a little bit about that? Sure. That's a great place to put your finger for the uh, 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 thing to put your finger on for the issue that you're worried about, because one of the lines of uh, one of the lines of argument among philosophers of science who haven't who have thought underdetermined worries about underdetermination are overblown is a suggestion that, look, this is kind of an artifact of uh, modern mathematized physical theories and and uh, a philosopher named Larry Loudon has gone so far, and writing with Jarrett Leplin, has gone so far as to say all of the convincing examples of underdetermination always involve the relativity of motion. And so if you think that, then you think this is a very restricted phenomenon. And it would be a huge mistake to say, hey, look at this thing that happens in, in you know, highly abstract math- mathematized physical theories. Uh, wow, all of science is probably like that. Uh, and, and, and it's even the case in, in recent years, even more broadly than just the, the idea that, that we may be finding, uh, uh, things that are specific to particular areas of science and overgeneralizing, um, even something like the pessimistic induction itself, people have worried about, well, if you're just going through and picking examples where this thing happens, uh, you know, you're, you're ignoring the cases where it doesn't happen or something like that, right? We're, that we're ignoring the kind of methodology we would insist on, on in science itself um, for making sure that our, uh, our evidence is, is representative, for making sure that we're right, considering a, a representative sample of past scientific theories and deciding what to think about present ones and stuff like that. So this, this question about representativeness and how, to extra- how, how and if we should be extrapolating uh, uh, arises in the details of, of trying to decide how compelling some of these arguments are. It, it seems to me, I, I actually think the case concerning underdetermination, uh, the case that uh, it's easy to, to generate in mathematized physical theories for reasons that probably don't generalize everywhere and all the time, uh, I think that case is actually pretty convin- has been pretty convincingly made. And so uh, it's, it's not that I, I mean, so I'm I'm worried about underdetermination of a different kind, but the uh, part of what's happened is philosophers of science have tended to obsess on about the kinds of underdetermination they can prove to obtain, and that seems to uh, arise right. So uh, in uh, in this physical science context. Okay. Thank you. Okay, so so we move on from this. Um, to a section in which you're going to raise the sort of one of the central ideas now that we're going to be developing over the course of the rest of the book. And this is the idea of sort of the worry of the problem of unconceived alternatives. Okay. Um, this is a proposition that, or a problem that is fundamental to understanding what your argument's going to be about each of the three case studies that are going to come later, Darwin case study, the Galton, and the Weissman. So um, since this is such a huge part of the book, what is the problem of unconceived alternatives, and why is this so important? Why, why do we need to worry about this? Well, my suggestion is, I think, I think that, as I say in the first chapter, I think there are uh, convincing responses that at least generate a, a tie or a, a, you know, a situation where we, where we ought not be sure what to believe. In the case of arguments both from pessimistic induction and from underdetermination, but that there's a grain of truth in both of them um, that is connected to this further problem that hasn't quite been articulated, right? So uh, 
so the the suggestion is this: uh, if there's a kind of underdetermination that's really that we seriously need to worry about, right? That we have good grounds for worrying about. It is underdetermination of of our choice of of current theories by the evidence we have supporting them against alternative theoretical possibilities that are fundamentally different that we haven't even conceived of yet, right? That are, that, that are not in the elim- what I call the eliminative competition among theories right now, right? In the way that if you think back to say, right, the, the triumphant 200 years of Newtonian uh, mechanics dominating physical science, it's not that, you know, anybody thought of, of general relativity and, and said, uh, no, that's, that's not as well supported or uh, any such thing. Nobody had thought of it yet. And so I think if there's a real underdetermination worry, it's not the kinds of examples philosophers have done, taken so far, it's this underdetermination by unconceived alternative theoretical possibilities. If there's a reason to, uh, to, to take that possibility seriously and think that, yes, that's actually the situation we're in, it's the historical record. So the historical record provides the evidence that makes us take the prospect of underdetermination by unconceived alternatives seriously and think, hey, yeah, that's probably the situation that we're in because it's the situation that uh, historically theorists have been in over and over again. Right? What we learn from history, I think, is that we're not very good at exhausting a space of theoretical alternatives that are well supported by a given body of evidence. And why, why would you call that a problem of unconceived alternatives? Well, it's a problem for scientific realism because if you think that our current theories, well supported as they are by the evidence we have, uh, are, are only the best supported of the things we've thought of so far, but that there are probably lots of alternatives out, theoretical alternatives out there we haven't even thought to, to try out and test against them, well, then your uh, confidence in the, uh, the truth of contemporary scientific uh, theories uh, is, is under challenge. So the first thing, well, so there are two things immediately that come to mind to mention or that I wanted to mention for, eventually from what you just said. The first um, is the ambitiousness of this, this theory, right? I mean, you're really making a claim here about the nature of human thought or nature of cognition and its its limitations in some way. This isn't just about um, the history of science. This is, um, at least in moments of the book, about something more broad um, that has something to do not just what people have done, but what it's possible for a human being in a situation where uh, of scientific theorization to do. So on the one hand, it's um, the really the ambition of this theory. On the other hand, or not on the other hand, but another thing immediately that um, it, somebody in hearing you say this would ask would be, okay, so um, tell me about how you use, how you look in the historical record for a lack, right? How do you look in the historical record methodologically for an absence of something? Because it sounds like, right, what we're looking for then is a failure to on the part of historical actor to conceive of a possible alternative to that theory. So um, especially in the case of the latter point, can you talk a little bit about that? What does it mean and what does it look like for you to use the historical record um, to find evidence of an unconceived alternative? Uh, sure. Um, so, so yeah, let me address both of those things. One thing, I mean, 
there is a sense in which uh, in which the argument of the book is extraordinarily ambitious in a really old-fashioned way. I mean, one one thing that we all right all of we sophisticated professionals these days knows uh, realize is you know how different the different areas of science are, and probably there isn't going to be anything you can say about all of them that applies. All, and and this in a, in a way is uh, is atavistic in that I, I I make this very general argument. Uh, on the other hand, there are some <laughs> there are some there are some things to say in defense of that ambition. Um, one is what I'm really creating. Uh, a, what I really suggest there's a worry about or a problem for is a kind of of reasoning uh, or a kind of inference that you might call eliminative. It's when you're eliminating possibilities and believing what's left over. Right. So one thing to note is. I'm only really uh, so I don't want to suggest, and I, I, I try to say carefully in the book. Look, this isn't a problem for all of science uh, because not all of science is makes use of of this kind of eliminated inference. It does seem to be especially important in those cases where we're uh, uh, trying to to justify or decide whether to believe uh, uh, what we think of as especially theoretical science, mm-hmm. but that's not all that science does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's really, there's a problem about, uh, there's a thing to worry about in the case of eliminative inferences, which are much broader than science and not, uh, so we, we engage in eliminative inferences all over the place. Um, and it's not what all of science does either. Uh, but the, the interesting thing is there's one way of thinking about the argument of the book is that I'm arguing that uh, eliminative inference is a very strong, very powerful, useful um, kind of inference. We use it all the time in everyday contexts everywhere. When we use it in science, um, we're using it in a way, in a place that it is risky, in a way that we don't appreciate. Because in everyday con, con uh, excuse me, everyday contexts, mm-hmm. right? See, it was somebody else who lives in my house who did this. Now, which one of them was it? Uh, there's a, a background assumption that's satisfied, which is that we have a pretty good grasp of all the alternative, all the possible alternatives. And the suggest one, one way to think of the suggestion is, wow, science is a, is a place. Theoretical science is a place where very often that presumption isn't satisfied. And so we're taking a very powerful, useful tool um, that that has a broad reliability and putting it to work in a context where the assumptions needed for its reliability to to hold up aren't satisfied and so there's a way in which there's a way in which the the argument's very ambitious in that way right it sort of applies to everything but also in which it has to be sort of carefully um uh constrained what it is that actually creates creates trouble for which isn't all of science but to the the second uh the second uh, part of your your question right so suppose I, you're trying to convince somebody this really is a problem for at least lots of theoretical science or lots of scientific claims that have been made uh, or scientific theories that have been advanced. How do you show that? How do you show that this, uh, the, these alternatives uh, really are uh, all over the place? By hypothesis, we're talking, in the present case, we're talking about alternative uh, uh, theories that haven't been conceived of. How do you show that those are sitting all over the place? Well, the strategy, right, is to uh, go back into past cases and say, look, we have repeatedly in the past been in the position of only being able to conceive of one or a small number of theoretical possibilities well confirmed by this, uh, this body of evidence, whereas we now know that there were unconceived alternative possibilities 
available, present at the time, that were un, that nobody conceived of, right? And so, that, in a way, that's the biggest historical challenge, right? When when you say, how do you go back and show that somebody didn't do something or that something never occurred to somebody? And that's actually where the details of the historical cases really matter, because in it, it actually turns out to be interestingly different in the in the three cases that I um, uh, that I, I discuss. Uh, in the case of Darwin, for example, what we find is uh, somebody, a, a later, a, a, a person who developed an, one of these fundamentally alternative, um, fundamentally uh, distinct conception of how inheritance and generation might work, trying to express his theory to Darwin. This is, it's Francis Galton, who's the person in question, right? They, Galton and Darwin were, were uh, cousins, and they, they corresponded and were, were close. Uh, and you can uh, see, and I show in the book from Darwin's letters, that he just doesn't understand the fundamental idea that Galton is trying to introduce him to, right? So that, that in a way, was the best smoking gun I ever found, right, was, was the actual alternative being presented to uh, somebody with an, a, a going theory and, uh, uh, you know, positive evidence that he doesn't understand it. In other cases, uh, I, I'm arguing, I, I, I argue that, right, from in, in scientific writings, for instance, right, Weissman will say, uh, well, right, this isn't true, so it has to be this other way, because there's no alternative. And you can use that kind of claim to show, well, so here's this third alternative that would come along later, that people would suggest later, and we can go back and see, wow, uh, that would have worked just as well, right? In, in part, we, we see those especially clearly when the alternative that's getting ignored is the one we ultimately come to embrace. That's not required, but it makes it particularly easy to see. Uh, and we say, ah, so it's a reasonable to infer that that possibility just never occurred to Weismann, or he wouldn't say this, um, this otherwise silly eliminative thing, that it doesn't work in way X, so it has to work in way Y. Uh, and so it, it's sort of different. It, it's heterogeneous. It, it, it's different in the between the, the chapters. What I found in each case, and uh, um, and you know, it's 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 fallible. It, perhaps a, the case could be criticized on uh, on evidential grounds in any one of those cases. But I think the <laughs> yeah. Eh. <laughs> but uh, but the uh, the fun of that was going back and trying to find because uh, I, I didn't know. I didn't know how to show that before I dug into the cases and I was just, I was hoping to find the kinds of things that would enable me to make a convincing argument that so-and-so didn't conceive of, of a given theory. It seems to me there's a, a kind of, there's a kind of background plausibility to the idea that, you know, Aristotle never conceived of Newtonian mechanics. Newton never conceived of general relativity, right? People are, are likely to, um, to concede those, those claims uh, but there is this general worry, uh, right? If you think these unconceived alternatives exist in some general way, you have to really be able to show that a theoretical alternative hadn't even been proposed or hadn't been part of the eliminative competition at all uh, at a given earlier time. And so the historical details are how you show that. Right. And, uh, and because uh, this is a great segue, um, there's, there's a ton that we can talk about that's, you know, that really wonderful in this these first two chapters, but because so much of um, the, really what you're arguing here is, is about the details. It's about doing the hard work of getting into the historical 
documents and using the details to show and to build up this theory, um, let's get right into those details and those cases. Um, so for listeners who haven't um, yet had a chance to read the book, who I hope will have a chance after this if they haven't already, um, you give us three really wonderfully worked out case studies here. One is Darwin focusing on his idea of pangenesis. And then we move to Galton um, focusing on his idea of stirp um, as, uh, and we can, we can or don't have to talk about what that means. And then Weismann's theory of germplasm. Um, now, be, be, if in the interest of time, we probably won't have time to talk about all of these, but can you choose um, just whichever one of these three cases is most interesting and fascinating to you and talk us through um, a little bit about, you know, uh, talk us through the case a little bit and um, how this idea of unconceived alternatives plays out and how it helps us to understand this, this problem. Sure. I, uh, I I will apologize to myself, if no one else, for not talking about the Weismann case, because there are ways, especially in our how we came to have the pre- our present conception of uh, inheritance uh, and development, that uh, for which that case is really particularly interesting. But it's a little easier to um, quickly sketch in the in the case of the transition from Darwin to to uh, Galt, and so and so I'll talk about that real quick. The, the idea is this. So Darwin uh, developed a theory of, of inheritance on which uh, the parts of the adult body throw off little particles. He called them gemules that accumulate in, in sexual, sexually reproducing organisms. They accumulate in the sex organs, right? And that, that was the material on which the, uh, the, the body of the next, from which the body of the next generation was, was made. And he thought, right, you, you can, here's a, a, this is by no means a quote. It's a general description of Darwin's thinking on the, on the matter. Um, how else could it be that uh, offspring resemble their parents in so many detailed particular ways unless those detailed particular features of the parents were involved in some way in producing, like causally involved in the production of those same traits in the offspring? possibility that Darwin just never got his mind around, never considered and couldn't recognize when it was presented to him by Galton, uh, was the possibility of, of what we call a germline, right? In which, uh, no, it's not that the features of the adult went right to the sex organs or whatever, and then caused the features of the offspring, but instead they had a common source, right? There was a, a there's an iso- a reproductive line, uh, that produced features in the adult and then went on to produce systematically related features in the offspring, right? And so uh, it's important to, to notice um, what Darwin fails to conceive of isn't Galton's theory specifically or even Weismann's theory specifically. It's a whole class of theories that were just not on his radar that would have appealed to this kind of common cause mechanism. And of course, again, it's easy to see because that's what we think really happens. And so, uh, you know, once it was proposed, once we did um, start uh, start investigating that possibility, uh, we, we we started thinking that's that's the way things really are. And later theories tend to be these common cause uh, uh, germline source of uh, uh, of resemblances between parents and offspring. But it was an idea that Darwin just didn't have. And, and uh, as I said before, particularly nice historical case because 
really quite good evidence that he wasn't able to understand or recognize it when it was presented to him, right? Uh, and so that's the kind of thing that I mean by both evidence of and unconceived alternative theories. And yet it's, it, and the important thing is the uh, exclusion of these whole classes of, of theories from earlier thinking uh, that, again, we, I, I think we have good reason to think is, is every reason in the world to think is still going on. Great. Thank you. Great, elegant, precise. So one of the things that might, um, that a reader might ask then is, okay, so what makes an alternative cluster of theories serious, right? Mm. Sort of how do we identify um, the, the sort of serious alternative clusters of theories that Darwin, for example, wasn't considering versus other possible clusters of theories that aren't serious and so shouldn't really factor in. So how did, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, this is actually a little bit surprisingly to me. This is something that um, that, uh, that philosophers, some philosophers of science have raised a lot of trouble about because early in the book I make a point of saying, look, we're not worried about these wild uh, skeptical scenarios. There's an evil demon who's trying to trick us or something like that. That wasn't the problem. The problem was uh, regular old scientific theories and that there might be more than one that's well confirmed by the evidence. Let's worry about that problem. And so people have come in and said, wait, 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 though. Uh, you know, to, to people at, in Newton's day, general relativity would have looked like a crazy idea, uh, right? It wouldn't, that wouldn't have seemed scientifically serious. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe. Uh, and so that was part of the reason for focusing on uh, the, the specific historical examples that I did. They are close enough in time to us, close enough in time to each other, that they wouldn't have been unrecognizable in that way. And so one thing I wanted to show with this, this bit of history is this happens even at this kind of more fine-grained scale of theories, just the theories in the second half of the 19th century or something like that, where you can't say, you know, had, uh, had Galton thought of Weismann's theory, he would have said, that's insane, right? That, that doesn't make any sense. But at the same time, right, the, the question, I, I, we're making this claim about uh, about an historical pattern that we that I think is still in place, uh, you have to answer the, the question about about how to delimit the scientifically serious possibilities we're worried about. And so, in a way, that's something I finesse because I say, look, we're really not we're not worried about these crazy uh, crazy scenarios. But uh, in the only sense that matters here, anything that's ultimately accepted by an actual scientific community has to count as scientifically serious, even if people at an earlier time wouldn't have thought so or would have rejected it as crazy or anything like that, right? Because, right, what we've seen is at least enough change in background beliefs and assumptions to make the uh, that previously uh, strange possibility uh, not only be taken seriously but ultimately be accepted, right, does happen in the course of scientific history. And so anything that ulti- that winds up actually getting accepted has to count as scientifically serious in the only sense that matters here. So it doesn't actually matter mm-hmm. if Aristotelians would have said, no, that's crazy, right? It still falls within the range of a well-confirmed, regular old, plain vanilla, garden variety scientific hypothesis. And if ours, if our scientific hypotheses are underdetermined as against uh alternatives that are as different from our own as Einstein is from Newton, uh, we can't say, well, we can afford not to take those seriously, 
because right part of what history shows us is that that's well within the bounds of what we might have to take seriously. And that's, I mean, it's, if listeners can't see this, but I'm nodding profusely <laughs> here. Um, this is, this is, it seems to me where it becomes really important that you're talking about, you're looking for cases in the actual historical record. You're not saying, you know, in some ideal world, this would count as a serious, you know, this is what a serious alternative looks like formally. You're saying, look, I'm showing you cases where I'm taking you through the argument, where I'm taking you through the process by which I'm going to show you that these people were presented by peers with the possibility of considering a serious alternative, an alternative that was considered serious by their peers or by some peers or by later peers, and they did not take that in. So this, this, it seems to me that um, this is precisely where working with in a fine-grained way with historical detail and taking us through this as it unfolded really, really makes this point. Thanks. I, I mean, I, I felt like that was the constraint I wanted to satisfy was, look, it, it, an automatic way to make sure we're talking about the kinds of alternatives that we ought to take seriously, that it would be an actual problem for contemporary theories if we're ignoring them. The, the way to right the, a constraint that can just can ensure <laughs> that those possibilities are the ones we're worrying about is to it is really this well it has to have been actually accepted by some uh, uh, actual scientific community at some point uh, you could even loosen that up and say it has to have been seriously entertained by some scientific community right that would do it too it so happens I think you can generate uh, all the examples you want. Even just sticking to to um, theories that actually wound up being accepted by somebody, uh, and so that's so that yeah, that does turn out to be uh, the way that we make sure that we're talking about the kinds of examples that that really that would really worry you, and and that were are really a distinctive problem for theoretical natural science as opposed to knowledge claims of any kind or or something like that. Now, there's so much more um, happening in these three chapters in particular, and there's so much more in any of these cases we could talk about that uh, that we won't have time to right now. But one of the things that um, you that's of particular interest potentially to STS, right, as a field, um, is the issue that you raise um, later on in these chapters, where you bring up um, a possible concern by um, a field that we. Um, uh, acronymize, if that's a word, to SSK, the Sociology of Scientific Knowledge. And this is a problem of, you know, so where is there um, a space for the social in here? Or more broadly conceived, you could sort of extrapolate out to the question of how do we get from um, these three cases where you're showing this phenomenon or this problem of unconceived alternatives as it's manifest for basically three men, and how do we get from there to a story about communities? How do we get from there to a story about groups of scientists? And and where is the root, where is the place, if if at any, um, for the social and for the community in here? Can you speak to that a little bit? Because I think that's um, one of the things that would you know, come up as a question for, especially a social historian looking to this. <laughs> sure. Well, and I, and I do say, I say some things early on in the book about what I think is and, and isn't convincing about uh, the, the, what we think of as the broad style of SSK arguments, uh, mm-hmm. argumentation and the conclusions that, uh, that sociologists of scientific knowledge have come to. Um, the, the way it arises in connection with, with this argument, I mean, in some ways, uh, I want to say that the the considerations on which this is this worry is based are in some ways very far from 
uh, the, considera- the, the kind of constructivist picture of science on which uh, lots of SSK worries are, are grounded, right? That, uh, that it, the, uh, the, the constructivist, uh, the, the SSK picture uh, emphasizes the tremendous amount of room there is for, uh, for different sort, to, to support different kinds of beliefs by the evidence, right? There's a, a way in which you can think of, of uh, all the way back to, to th- this is a lo- line of thought gr- also grows out of Kuhn. And you can think of it ar- as arising in Kuhn in the following way. It's not that our theories aren't supported by evidence. Of course they are. It's that it's complicated. And so there's always lots of evidence. And, right, the decision that this evidence supports this theory best or that it supports it well enough we ought to wait and try to solve this problem rather than throwing it over for another theory those kinds of um those kinds of epistemic decisions are open always open and and complex and uh and often very often defensible and people do in those kinds of circumstances people do what it's in their interests to do. That's why the SSK is sometimes thought of as a you know interest-driven kind of picture of science. And the worry here is very is very different, but the two can be fit together in a particular way. And that is uh if you think we've got this historical pattern of unconceived alternatives, right? It's natural to ask why. And SSK kinds of concerns would be a natural, I think just part, but part of the story of why. Right? Why is it that we uh, are so bad at at, uh, at 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 doing this? Right? At finding all the alternatives. One part of that might have to do with the way we're cognitively constituted, the way human beings are built cognitively. But another part might have to do the way with the way that scientific communities operate and the way that, that scientific communities do what they do. So uh, let me say two quick things in connection with that. One is I do try in the book at the at the conclusion of the discussion of individual cases. To uh, to make a straightforward historical argument that the this lack of um, this failure to conceive uh, of of alternative uh, classes of theories applies at the community level with respect to these particular examples, and it's not just about three individual mm-hmm. guys. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing I wanted to say, one of the the kinds of work that's grown out of this that uh, that very much takes up uh, uh, the role for for the so for social uh, phenomena is in worrying about whether there's been some variation over historical time in our vulnerability or the the how pressing the problem uh, would be, and uh, one of the things that 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 re- that current research is suggesting, I think I think it is at least not crazy to worry about contemporary that in contemporary science. We're putting much less effort into lo- even looking for uh, um, for alternative, fundamentally distinct theoretical alternatives to, to what we've got now, and partly because of the ways that that scientific communities are now constituted uh, and fueled, if you will, in comparison to scientific communities of the past. Right? We now have, since you know, roughly World War II, we have uh, grant-driven dri- science in which, in order to actually conduct uh, science or go test your new idea, you need to, to uh, convince a panel of experts in the field that it's worth doing and worth the NSF giving you money to do and so on. And that wasn't true in the era of gentlemen scientists uh, engaged in the practice for its own, its own sake. So, uh, so the social elements of, uh, of 
the scientific uh, uh, practice um, are an element of this story, but the kinds of considerations that that SSK folks have used to to motivate their their conclusions really don't come in to the, the, the way that the argument here is motivated. Right, thank you. Now, it's, there's a lot more in the book um, that we are not going to have a chance to get to in detail, <laughs> but I'll, I'll mention for listeners, um, chapter six and seven, um, sort of after looking at these three um, very well-fleshed-out case studies, um, take up a number of replies by scientific realists to this pessimistic induction um, that might pose a challenge to the problem of unconceived alternatives that you're giving us, and you sort of show us um, that these aren't really problems, right? So there's um, chapter 6 and chapter 7 both look at this um, in various um, or various dimensions of potential problems that might be um, raised by realists with this idea, and you show us, um, I think, convincingly that they're not um, really problems. Um, now, at the final, uh, before we come to the sort of our wrap-up and conclusion, um, I do want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about the final chapter. And this is a chapter in which you're presenting us a way to think about uh, sort of uh, I think about scientific theories without ex without necessarily being scientific realists, but rather from the perspective of something that you're calling epistemic instrumentalism. Um, now, can you talk about that a little bit, um, and then I'll sort of I'll bring us to a, um, a close here with some more general questions, just because this is something that seems um, fundamental to what you're doing um, in this last chapter of the book, and it would be a shame not to not to raise it for listeners. Sure, especially because I think this is something that uh, opponents of realism uh, have not typically done in any in a in a satisfying way. So one, the the, the realism debate is usually thought of as this debate between realists and anti-realists. And so there's this other opponents of of um, of realism uh, are. That's what they are. They're anti-realists, which is not – I don't think of myself as an anti-realist at all. I think of myself as an instrumentalist, um, partly for the same kinds of reasons you'd want to say, well, nobody's pro-abortion. People are pro-choice, right? It's, I'm not against uh, – right? the fact that a scientific community has decided there's sufficient evidence to believe in something or that it's our best theory, that's not a reason to disbelieve it, right? That's why it seems to me anti-realism is an, is an inapt uh, uh, name, but also if – you're going to come along and say, ah, well, here's this problem that makes me think uh, our, our contemporary scientific theories or theories of a particular kind or something like that are not straightforwardly accurate descriptions of how things stand in otherwise inaccessible domains of nature. You have to tell us what you think they are and how they do what they do so well. Uh, and so that's what I think anybody who's trying to make trouble for realism, scientific realism owes us, and it's what I'm trying to provide in the last chapter of the book, and the idea is, right, so there's this long intellectual tradition of thinking of scientific theories, oh, instead of as straightforward descriptions of inaccessible domains, um, more as conceptual instruments, right? So they are tools that uh, allow us to do particular things. And lo and behold, I mean, one of the things we learned from the history of science is they don't have to be accurate descriptions of how things stand in inaccessible domains of nature in order to let us do lots of instrumentally powerful things. Uh, there's also there's a, been a long tradition of um, of in the philosophy of science of raising trouble for this this instrumentalist this broad instrumentalist idea, saying well it can't work and it's incoherent and and right what what do you mean by 
accept but not believe and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I approach the issue in a little bit of a different way. Uh, In that last chapter, I say, look, everybody is an instrumentalist about some theories. Take, for example, Newtonian mechanics. Uh, We use Newtonian mechanics to send rockets to the moon. Uh, it's it's simpler than uh, than its relativistic counterparts, and at the scale at that scale, the differences don't make a difference. Right? They don't matter enough to to throw it off. And it's, so it's a much handier uh, calculational tool or device for for organizing our prediction and intervention about what's going to happen. Uh, so, but everybody needs that sense of instrumentalism, right? Even the scientific realist wants to say about Newtonian mechanics. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's not that's not an accurate description of the way things really stand in nature. Uh, it, but it's a useful tool. It's a useful instrument. Mm-hmm. And in the, the the last chapter, what I try to do is argue that's a model for the view that an instrumentalist can take of all scientific theories, even ones where it, for which she can't tell us. Oh, here's the thing I really believe, though. That's why this this other one is false and a, merely an instrument, merely a helpful instrument. It's because I know this other thing is true, even when you don't have the thing that you can exhibit, right? Uh, my position believes that for lots of kinds of scientific theories we have now, there will eventually be some, uh, some replacement, right? Some even more instrumentally powerful theory. And, uh, you know, at that point, people who are realists about that theory are going to take the, the same view of, of contemporary theories uh, that we now do of, of Newtonian mechanics. But the argument that uh, that somehow the position doesn't make sense or is indefensible uh, or conceptually confused or something seems to me to be mistaken and, and straightforwardly demonstrably mistaken because the coherence of instrumentalism is something we all need. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? Everybody needs because we all take that attitude about some kinds, some scientific theories. The, inst- the traditional anti-realist or instrumentalist is just somebody who takes it even towards scientific theories that she doesn't. Uh, for which she isn't able to specify what the alternative thing is that she does believe. Thank you. Um, Now, there's a ton of stuff that we didn't get a chance to talk about, um, and I just want to ask you just a few things before we close, and I'll let you go and um, go on to what I hope is a beautiful (laughs) day there. Um, We've talked a lot about the use of history of the, the sort of the, what we can get out of using historical evidence as philosophers of science. Can you say just briefly a little bit about what can historians um, learn from this sort of, what do you hope if anything that the historian of science um, can take um, from, from this, or perhaps, you know, more generally, if you have strong opinions about what we <laughs> might be able to take more from the philosophy of science. So, so either way you can either be sure, specific sure. to this book or more general, if you feel strongly. Well, it's, in a way, it'll be both, I guess. Uh, and it's connected to what I was saying earlier about wanting to sort of bring the philosophy and history of science back into a little closer commerce than they than they had before, or than they than they they seem to have right now. Uh, the it seems to me one of the sort of professional trends in the history of science is uh, is a kind of uh, allergy to generalization or drawing uh, broad conclusions yeah. investigations. It's, it's one of the ways in which historians of science show that they're serious and professional, is that they're, they, they're professionally skeptical right. of any, all generalizations so about... fetishization of contingency or context. Right? That's right, particular, uh, of right. particular. 
And so, and I mean, this, this is worrying for the, uh, it seems to me for the, the interest of the history of science as a discipline, if, uh, you know, all historians of science ever wind up doing is explaining exactly who said what to whom in the Cavendish lab between these two years, uh, and exactly why they decided to change buildings or something. And that's all you can, that's all you can and ever, right, there, there's a, there's a, at least a thin generation of, of historians of science who think that, that, that that's how all you can ever say, all you can ever uh, generate evidence for on historical grounds. It seems to me if there's something for historians of science to learn from, from this book, and it's something I'd like to see happen more of in the profession generally anyway, it's that um, serious, detail-oriented history of science can be put in the service of uh, larger conclusions about the scientific enterprise. And I don't want to suggest by that, I mean, it would be very natural to think, oh, well, he, what he means by that is that we can generalize from what seemed to be going on in these three examples he's looked at to all of science. And that's not what I mean. Uh, what I mean is, it seems to me that the general pattern I'm talk, talking about, which I try to show very carefully in those three examples, but once you see how it arises in the three examples, it's easy to see how it arises in lots of other historical cases as well. Uh, that that general pattern right, creates a problem, not for science, for everything that anybody in a white lab coat ever said, or some, right, some uh, way of cutting science off like that, but for this particular way of reasoning in science, this eliminative kind of inference that seems so important to uh, the, our judgments of confirmation for, for theories. Mm -hmm. right? And so what I would want to, so right, with all, the, it's all those qualifications uh, and uh, that make it something different from saying, ah, I found a thing that happened somewhere and now I want you to think it happened, it happens everywhere all the time, sure. right? That's not the, <laughs> that's not the way in which I think the detailed history of science can, can, can really does have something to say and can be brought to bear on, on, uh, broader conclusions about the scientific enterprise as a whole or how things go in, in lots of kind, interesting, important, interestingly and importantly unified kinds of cases. Uh, I think this serves as a, a kind of, uh, of demonstration of that, and it's something I would uh, uh, immodestly uh, hope <laughs> hope to see more of in the in the hope to see the history of science get away from this um, kind of almost proud professional insistence on not saying anything about anything general. Almost, <laughs> <laughs> almost proud. Well, you can say from the inside. <laughs> Well, Kyle, thank you so much. I, one of the things um, that we have an opportunity to to hear a little bit about um, as we close today, um, because this is a book that came out originally in two thousand six, and so the new um, for the new books network is the, um, the the wonderful availability of a paperback um, that's given us the occasion to revisit these ideas. Is there anything in particular about the book or about what you are arguing in here that since the publication? Um, either in 2006 or in 2010 for the paperback, um, you've, you've been rethinking or you think about differently or you want an opportunity to sort of to raise for listeners? Uh, sure. Maybe uh, let me say a couple quick things. Sure. Uh, one is I'm not fully satisfied with the picture of instrumentalism, uh, especially with the level of detail at which I'm able to paint the picture of instrumentalism in the last chapter. And so I've been thinking uh, more about about how to how the details of working out an instrumentalist view of science go, uh, and uh, I'm working on some with some very smart uh, graduate students in, in, in 
including a guy at, not at my own institution, but at Pittsburgh named Yoichi Ishida, Ishida on that. Um, but more broadly and more, uh, uh, more close to the, uh, my own work, the, the so I've made a, a big deal in the course of this interview about how we're, I, I really don't mean to be suggesting that, uh, this is straightforwardly applicable to everything, uh, everything that happens in science. And I said that in the book, but then, uh, then went on to write the, the, the point of the book was to make the case that this is a real problem. And so I talked about all the places where I think it really does arise. And so part of what I've done in the intervening period is thought a lot more about where I think it doesn't arise and why, what, what, what makes that difference. So, uh, I published a couple of papers since about what I tried to do is think of a case, uh, the kind of case where I think, look, this just isn't a serious worry. And the, uh, the particular case I, I wound up writing some, something about recently is, is, uh, the case of the, the hypothesis of the organic origin of fossils, that fossils are the remains of living, uh, once living organisms. There was a time in the history of science where that was uh, uh, an hypothesis that I think was vulnerable and subject to, to this problem. There were competing alternative theories. It would have been perfectly reasonable on this kind of ground to say, well, and the, perhaps the truth of the matter is something we haven't even uh, conceived of yet. But the kind of evidence that we have for the organic origin of fossils has changed. Uh, it's cha- the, the, maybe the simplest example I can give is we now have something, a field, there's a whole field called experimental taphonomy. And what the experimental taphonomists do is make fossils from uh, organic remains to, in order to study the process and see how it happens, what we ought to expect, and how to infer backwards from fossils to characteristics of organisms and stuff like that. And so what I, what I wanted to suggest with that work is not only, look, this isn't a problem everywhere all the time, all of science doesn't work the same way. Um, the thing to pay attention to, the, the, the thing that should guide our yes, we're worried about it here, no, we're not worried about it over there, is the kind of evidence we have for particular sorts of, of hypotheses. And it's n- nothing about what the hypothesis says or whether it's about observables or unobservables or who says it or anything. The, the important thing for deciding whether this is a serious worry is the kind of evidence we have. And the place where it really is uh, sort of when, where, uh, where the worry is at a maximum is where the, uh, the evidence we have is... Uh, is of this, the, the inference supporting the theory is of this, purely of this eliminative type, uh, right? There are other kinds of evidence, and that's the, one of those other kinds is what we now have abundantly in the case of the organic origin of fossils that we didn't have before. So one way to, to think about the, sorry, I've probably said too much, but one, one way to think about uh, what, I've, what I've been doing since the original publication of the book is trying to figure out what, having made a case for the problem, I'm trying to figure out what the scope of the problem is and why, because why turns out to be uh, an interesting question uh, all on its own. That's fascinating. Thank you. Well, we've taken up a ton of your time, um, and so I don't. I want to sort of give you a chance to <laughs> to get off of Skype. Um, but before we go, because the book is so rich, and because there's so much that we didn't have a chance to talk about um, that um, that you give us here, is there anything in particular, or things in particular, that you want to make sure that you mention for listeners um, that we haven't had a chance um, to talk about, but that's important um, in your opinion for them uh, understanding the book, or that you want to that you want to say um, for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it? 
Well, I, I will maybe uh, maybe say a little bit more about something that did come up, but uh, but that uh, we didn't talk much about. Sure. Uh, and that is so one of the one of the things that I touted originally as an advantage, uh, a, a, a big advantage of the art kind of argument I was making uh, on the basis of history over these more traditional kinds of arguments, the pessimistic induction, underdetermination arguments, was that uh, unlike previous arguments, it did not con- uh, was not focused on similarities or di- and differences between contemporary theories and past theories, but on similarities between contemporary theorists and past theorists. And so why does that matter? Well, there's a sense in which to any, uh, any use of history, of historical examples, right, uh, to, to try to show something about present science, always, uh, always, at least always somewhat vulnerable to the, well, that was then and this is now, right? And now our theories have more detailed predictive success or they predict more novel phenomena or something like that. There's something suspicious about that, and you, you want to say, oh, well, we, we thought the level of success we had before justified believing that theory, and that turned out to be wrong, right. Why, why shouldn't we, we think that now, too? But you're always open to that kind of counterexample. One reason I thought it was important to, to focus on unconceived alternatives is what I'm really asserting continuity in is the abilities of theorists to exhaust these spaces of well-confirmed alternatives at a, at a given time. And I think we have a lot less ground for thinking that theorists have changed dramatically since, right, over the course of the modern scientific enterprise than that our theories have. There are all kinds of ways in which current theories are different and more sophisticated and fancier and, and whatnot than, than many earlier theories, maybe even all the ones that have been overturned, uh, that don't have corresponding differences in the, the, between the theorists who came up with them, the theorists who are coming up with ours. Now, much to my surprise, um, one, uh, one line of resistance I got from philosophers of science is, well, maybe theorists really are different now, or at least, more plausibly, that the way scientific communities work now is different in a way that really matters. Maybe we're much better at searching spaces of theoretical alternatives. Um, to, and, and right, So maybe the fact that we didn't do this well in, in the past, uh, it, it, it's... That was then and this is now all over again, but run with theorists. And so that really got me thinking. Uh, there's a quick and dirty response to the worry, which is, uh, yeah, but why should I think that we've now got – if we've been getting better at it all along, why should I now think that we've gotten good enough at it that we've – you know, there's just one or a few left and so now eliminative reasoning is safe right? or, or whatever. But the quick and dirty uh, response uh, seems to me not the most interesting thing to say there. The most interesting thing, what, what this line of response encouraged me to do was start thinking systematically about the way scientific communities have changed over the course of the modern scientific enterprise. And this is what led me to the, the line of, of research I mentioned earlier, uh, comparing the sorts of incentives that are in place and the freedoms that are in place to pursue and develop fundamentally different theoretical alternatives uh, now, as opposed to the middle of the 19th century when science was pr- first professionalized, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to the early scientific communities, the era of the gentleman scientist, in which people, it was very different people doing this, engaging this activity for very different reasons with very different outcomes. And so, uh, maybe ironically or maybe predictably, 
I've wound up thinking thinking that actually scientific communities have changed in important ways over the the course of history, but ways that that at least it's not implausible to think make the problem even worse for us. And so that's gotten me interested in uh, the question of whether we ought to um, to be distributing resources for. Uh, science and and uh, organizing the scientific enterprise the way that we are now this comparatively recent invention following World War II the success of the of radar and the and the bomb mm-hmm. uh, and when this massive state supported scientific enterprise was put into place uh, whether that's the way it should be because it's a, it's a way in which science itself has changed over the um, uh, over its history and what we're doing right now is an experiment. Uh, an experiment in how to do it. And I think that how to do it um, actually might make a big difference to how good a job we're doing of considering alternatives or looking for things we haven't thought of yet. That sounds great. And it sounds like another um, really wonderfully transdisciplinary project as well. Um, so, well, thank you, Kyle. Um, this has been great. The book was fantastic to read. It seems really important. Um, and thank you so much for making the time to talk about it today. You are very kind. And thank you very much for having me on. It was absolutely my pleasure. My pleasure. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks so much. And we'll see you next time.